Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, we left off in 3810. So remember where we've been now. Uh, the Hezekiah was supposed to die and uh, has this really good prayer. And then God says, okay, you seem to get it. So here's another 15 years. And the, the sign is that the, the sun will digress 10 degrees. So it's going to move back and then, then come back again. So uh, it's about a 40-minute a, a time, time period. So the sun actually reverses its course for a short time and then resumes again. So that's where we left off. Now, starting in verse 10, actually, you know, 11 verses, 10, 10 to 20 here, uh, something really unusual happens. Rather than... This is not a, a formal prayer in the sense. Isaiah writes kind of a prayer. And from what we've seen before, it's kind of an odd prayer. It's just got some weird stuff going on here. It's just, I don't know. I don't, I don't quite, quite get it. It just doesn't seem what a, what a faithful person would write. Because it begins with Hezekiah complaining that he was going to die, look at a quote, in the prime of my life, and then he's, you know, he quotes, must I be robbed of the rest of my years? So kind of just belly aching to God, like, y- you owe me. You know, not, not really thanks for the extra 15 years, it's like, well, I deserve this. So again, and just, just an odd way of, of doing it. But the really strange part about this writing is that out of 11 verses, only three speak of thanks to God. The rest are like me, 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 me. So basically all the rest of the verses are Hezekiah saying, I, I deserve better and I'm glad I got it. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the essence of, of, of what he's saying here. But let, let's take a look at a couple of these verses in, in particular. Now, verse 11, he should have just stopped right there. Because here he's saying, you know, the thing he's going to, he would, he would have missed the most if he died was seeing God at work in the people and the events around him. That's, that's a good thing, right? Of, of all the things you would miss in this world, the thing I miss most is God's interaction with his creation. I mean, that's, that's pretty good stuff there. That's not bad. Verse 12, you know, a, a, an admission of how transient life is, how unpredictable life is. So he uses the image of a tent. Now, a tent is not a permanent structure, is it? <laughs> Certainly around here. Um, you know, it, it, it doesn't stay in the same place long. A tent is designed to move. And by the same token, the image of the, the fabric in the loom. Why would you go to all the trouble of whatever you're making in the loom and then leave it there? A sweater, shirt, whatever you've made, a blanket, yeah, whatever that is, yeah, why would you go to all that work and then just leave it there? No, you're going to cut it off, you're going to tear it out, and you're going to use it. So that is very transitory as well. Now verses 12 and 13, twice in these two verses, Hezekiah says, quote, Day and night you made an end of me. 
That's something you want to say to God <laughs> twice. It's like again, it's 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 all me oriented. Is is what he's doing here? It sounds like he's blaming God. Not a stance I would suggest. I think we can come up with something better in 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 our prayer life. And all this is leading into what is coming next. That it's going to start going going poorly for for Hezekiah. So why does he say it then? Like. What's the purpose of saying it? Is it to be honest, or is it to be? He's Kyle's asking. Yeah, what, what what's the purpose of, of him taking this this stance? And in the next chapter, it seems clear that he's he's becoming very cocky. He's yeah, I can do this and get away with it. I can I can offend God, and he promised me another fifteen years. So, I mean, God didn't go back in his word. So, you know, I'm good to go, no matter what I do. Um, which I, that, now that you ask, I think is kind of the attitude of certain Christians who maintain the non-biblical belief of once saved, always saved. So I accepted Jesus when I was twelve. Now I get to go you know, rape, pillage, and, and, and plunder all I want, and you know I still get to go to heaven. It doesn't work that way, right? So uh, it seems though, you know, Hezekiah kind of has that same attitude, and we certainly see that in the next chapter. Just, just I'll do whatever I want. And that's when God finally says, okay, you go ahead, but you still get your 15 years, but it's not going to be any fun. <laughs> it just, you know, you because, you know, he, so Hezekiah's bringing this on himself. He just, all of a sudden now, just becomes full of himself and cocky and, and uh, kind of, you know, like he's made out of Teflon, yeah. right? That just, I, I get to do this now. So, uh, but again, you know, every once in a while we see a glimmer, glimmer of hope. Verse 15. You know, a, a simple realization that no matter how much we complain, God's will will be done. So there's an important inspiration, right? I mean, so gold star there, Hezekiah, right? So indeed, our attitude should be like that of, of Hezekiah. Look at the quote. I will walk humbly all my years. In other words, yeah, whatever time we have, we have to walk humbly with God. How many times have we talked about being humble, right? I mean, that's... That's the core. Because if you're humble, then you will come to God. If you're not, then you become proud. Verse 17. Another piece of wisdom. Surely it was for my benefit that I suffered such anguish. Referring to the illness that almost killed him. Um, but that's a really good revelation there. I mean, again, a, a great moment in the midst of all this other nonsense. But he realizes that that it is a blessing to be tested by God. I mean, that's right out of the Bible. So the the suffering that comes is is a test, and ultimately is designed to benefit us. So he's even smart enough to realize that. And, and also there in verse seventeen, you know, Hezekiah realizes that if God were to account for all of his sins, God's justice would result in Hezekiah's death. So again, great revelation. I understand that. Um, I I I, do, I deserve to die, but only for the grace of God, I didn't. Verses eighteen to nineteen, another pretty bold statement, basically saying that God needs to keep the faithful around so that they can continue to praise Him. Says the guy saying, like I'm the only guy who really praises you. You need to keep me around. <laughs> See, that's I me. Mean. He's just. It's like back and forth and pick one and stick with it. 
but he keeps mixing the two together. I'll say something really nice, then I'll offend God. Then I'll say something nice, then I'll offend God. Then I'll say something nice, and I'll offend God. Yeah, it's just it's crazy. I mean, after just saying something great like that in in, in verse verse seventeen, then that. Ah, I deserve to be here because I'm the only one worthy to be uh, left as a faithful person. So, it, it, it just gets bizarre. Now verse 20. The conclusion of this statement he's making is really significant. And he concludes by saying that his trust is in God is great enough for him to believe that even before he is delivered, he trusts that, quote, the Lord will save me. Now there's great faith. I mean, that's what faith is all about. Faith, faith is not, well, I'm going to pray, and if, and if God, God heals me, makes me better, or gives me what I want, then, then I will thank and praise Him. No, faith is trusting in God for whatever you get before it happens. And that's what Hezekiah is saying. So he at least ends on a good note. But there are a lot of, a lot of crazy stuff in here. So the chapter concludes with Isaiah interceding for the Lord and offering to Hezekiah the cure for his illness. Find a look at uh, verse 22. Hezekiah's question is answered by God. So he's, you know, it, it just, he's, he's uncertain about this. So God says, okay, remember the proof now. The proof is you, you look at the steps of the temple, the sun's going to, you know, the shadow's going to come down, then all the sun's going to go back up 10 steps, then it'll come back down again. When you see that, boom, you will know. And it also means that you know, with your extra 15 years now, you have 15 years to walk up and down those steps of the temple to continue worshiping me. So that's that's the plan, ultimately. And there goes a fun and exciting chapter 38. What are our thoughts, questions, comments, do you have in 38? So he wasn't like a lukewarm Christian then. <laughs> Cal said he, 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 he's kind of like a lukewarm Christian. Yeah, a mix of the positive and negative. And yes, that's. But would he be considered that though, based on his faith? That's I guess my question, Jimmy, in regards to that. Previous faith, but what's important is today. Right. Which you know, I mean, you could be a quote great Christian for most all your life, but then at the end, ah, you know, Job, just, you know, why don't you just curse God and die? Okay, I'll curse God, and but I've been good for most of my life, therefore I, I get I get all the all the credit for that. No, it doesn't work that way. It's 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 the consistency of it. So if it's yeah, you keep going back and forth, then yes, if I, I think the effect would be if you combine hot and cold water together, you're getting lukewarm, and Jesus is not a fan of that. So it's like pick. That's what I'm saying. Pick one or the other. Jesus said, "I would rather you be." Hostile against me. I'd rather you be stone cold. I'd rather you totally, completely reject me. That you're, you know, but you know the you know, somebody who dabbles in it that just shows up to church occasionally or whatever, and uh, you know, that's Jesus has trouble with that mentality, that philosophy, and stop and think. Then with the people like we studied last year in the, in the Gospel of John, I mean that's who he was dealing with. I'm including the professional religious people who just go through the motions, but it did not affect their heart, and that's that's the problem. Do you think he really knew what he was himself was like, or heard what he actually said? Because when you look at 19, he says, "The living, the living, they praise you as I am doing today," and yet he hadn't been really praising them. Right, it, just for a very short time. Right, he was he was a. You know, not very good 
king or person <laughs> up until just recently, till uh, yeah, Sennacherib sends the troops to this uh, siege Jerusalem. Yeah, then all of a sudden, okay, now I get it. Uh, but then, like I say, that lasted a couple of weeks, and then, then it's gone again. Well, there are people like that today. There you go. Well, I did such and such and such, but the rest of their life they were... Right. So having a good having a good middle is not is, is, does not equate with salvation. Right. You know, that's you can't stand before God in judgment and say, well, yeah, you know, that from 2017 till you know February 2018, I I I really had it. You know, then well, what about the last 40 years? Well, that's the you know, but boy, those you know, those 14 months were really good. It's just yeah, you know, it, it it just doesn't doesn't work that way, and that's. This is very exemplary of, yes, what, what not to do with life. That when you're blessed, you don't get cocky, uh, you don't think that God likes you better, you, you don't take advantage of that. In fact, it's designed to humble you even more and make you more trusting and dependent. You know, as Jesus says, we have to become like little children to enter the kingdom of heaven. So uh, here he's, he's becoming all puffed up with himself again. And uh, uh, it just didn't, didn't stick. Anything else in 38? Well, 39 is a treat, isn't it? <laughs> what a knucklehead. Uh, very strange chapter. And we can get through this pretty quick because it's just dumb. <laughs> so, who in the right mind, as king of a nation, lets a total stranger from a foreign country <laughs> in to your country and then brag and show them all military strength and all your wealth who does that Hezekiah does <laughs> like I say I mean this now really verifies what we were getting a sense of in the previous chapter I mean he is just that's how full of himself he is I can do this and you know God's going to take, take take care of me I, I get to do any boneheaded thing I want and God will take care of me now I mean you have to harken back to uh, Jesus's temptation Right, devils, you know, takes him up to the, you know, top, top of the temple. You know, jump off, and the angel of the Lord will come and and and, and catch you before you hit the ground. And yeah, I could do that, but yeah, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm, I'm not gonna put put the uh, God to the test. I mean, it just we're not gonna do that. So this is what you know Hezekiah is doing. He thinks he can just do anything, and God, God's gonna have that safety net right underneath him, and. He's going to hit, hit the ground pretty hard here pretty soon. So this, these envoys come from Babylon and you know, just, just show up and they, they, they're feigning uh, concern. Oh, great king of Israel, we hear that you, you've been very, very sick, but your God you know, brought you back to health and we, we just wanted to come and shake your hand and, and, uh, and, and, and be your bud, you know. So what, what that does for, for Hezekiah then, now Babylon by this point is a great empire. So he's now thinking, wow, they, they think I am equal with them. You know, Israel's this little wee thing, you know, it's just, you know, that it's really nothing. And uh, um, so he, he just becomes so full of himself. I mean, just so, hey, we're buds now. I'm going to show you all my military strength and all my wealth and everything. What else you want to see? Uh, you know, it's just, it's absolutely incredible. So he does that. Those guys leave. And once you know it, Isaiah shows up. 
dude, what did you just do? <laughs> because, you know, Isaiah knows what he's done. He just wants to give Hezekiah a chance to, to answer. But to Hezekiah's credit, he doesn't lie. He doesn't have him all around. He tells him exactly, but he does so proudly. Because he, he, he's delusional. I think, going back to your previous question, he's, he's actually delusional at this point, thinking that these guys really like me, and you know, I'm just equal with them, and you know, it's just, it's good, it, we're going to have an awesome relationship. So these are my buds now. You know, we're, 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 we're just in, in, in this together. And he, he's proud of the fact, the way he explains it to Isaiah, he's proud of the fact that, that he has done that. So... It, 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 it's tr- truly incredible. Now, the Babylonian king, if you follow this through through history, and you can see evidence of this in, in, in uh, Second Kings, is, remember Sennacherib was the Assyrian em- Empire king, right? At the, the time Babylon was, was rising, of course the Assyrians were much greater. So the Assyrians see Babylon growing, so they go storming in and remove this king for a period of five years. But this king, the Babylonian king, actually mustered together some military strength and he came and pushed the Assyrians out. He resumed the throne. This guy's tough. Right? <laughs> this guy's really, really something. I mean, that rarely happens in, in, in history. So this Babylonian king now, who sent the envoys to Hezekiah, is solely focused on revenge on the Assyrians. So he's, he's trying to figure out ways to, to, to destroy the Assyrians. So Hezekiah is obviously flattered that a king from the great Babylonian Empire would notice that the king of Judah had been ill. So he just falls into the trap of believing that he's more important than he really is. Jesus tells a parable about that. Right? In a big banquet. You, know, you go in think think you're all that in a bag of chips and you go up and assume uh, you know the seat on the dais or you know next to the the, the, the host or you know in a seat of honor, you know, that is typically reserved for you know dignitaries or somebody special or something like that. And you're just sitting there all proud of yourself and look where I'm sitting and you know, I'm that important and I can just come and sit wherever I want and all that. And then, then the host has to come and, and whisper in your ear, somebody more important than you just arrived. There's a seat way in the back, the only one left. You have to go back there, buddy. Bye-bye. Jesus said it's so much better to assume the back seat and be invited to come forward than it is to be asked to leave the front seat. So Hezekiah is guilty of that. So major blunder showing the enemy, strangers, your military strength and your finances. All right. That's clear. But now a question. You now are king of Israel. The envoys come to you. Don't do this. What else could you have done? What what else would have been a better response to these these envoys of Babylon come coming to you and and explaining that you know we heard you were sick and now you're better okay little little hospitality 
but you don't have to show them everything you got. <laughs> okay? So, you know, be nice to them. Don't, you know, kick them out. <laughs> right? So, yeah, we don't want to offend them. That would work. Uh, he does that. They, they did have a meal together and, you know, all that, you know. Uh, but don't show them that. Just stop at the meal. They nice spend the time with you. Bye-bye. Uh, what else could Hezekiah have done instead? There's an opportunity. He could have sat him down and said, I got a story for you and shared, you know, the glory of God, how, you know, God shined his favor upon him. And... That, that, that's, that's a terrible answer, Lewis. I, I, I can't believe you would, you would say something like that. It's just... <laughs> Brandy told me to say it. <laughs> no, it's, I mean, they're, they're coming because of the illness. Yeah, there's been an incredible opportunity to, to witness the, the greatness of God to these foreigners who have no idea who God is. I mean, what an opportunity. You know, sit them down at a meal. <laughs> Peggy's cooking. And, you know, and, you know, I mean, a lavish meal and all of that. And, you know, and yeah, bring it up. Yo, you guys are here because you, you, you heard about I was really at death's door and now I'm all better. Let me tell you how that happened. And people are going to accept it or reject it, but yeah, that's, that's, yeah, as we're looking here in the book of Acts, I mean, that's exactly what we keep seeing. That's the basis of everything we do. We have to use those opportunities to, to share the gospel. I mean, come on. <laughs> but again, see what Hezekiah does. Look at my wealth. Look at my military. See, everything now is just, he's just so full of himself at this point. God is nowhere in the mix. And again, as we keep reading, we're going to realize that, okay, God, God says, you don't want me? Yeah, I go other places. So he does. And uh, so, yeah, it, it just, I wonder how many of those opportunities we miss on a daily basis. Yeah, say, so you don't have to stand up at the lunchroom at work and, you know, pound your Bible and, you know, yell at people, you're all going to hell unless you, you know, believe, believe, believe like I do. Um, that's usually not real effective. But, you know, it, but the person you're sitting next to at the lunchroom might be inquiring. Um, uh, you know, we, pe- people who, who wander into churches, it's, it's usually the result of some, some, something traumatic in their lives. They're, they're seeking Something. They don't know what. They just heard these Christians, they got something, maybe. And yeah, wouldn't it be great if somebody saw that person and buddied up with them and talked about the lunch afterwards or something and just kind of build a relationship there? I mean, that's, that's, that's the beauty of what the church is supposed to be because there, there are all kinds of people out there you know, seeking the answers. And we're saying the answer is Jesus. Well, try sharing that. <laughs> right? I mean, it's not, not a difficult formula here. But the point is, as you read about what the interaction between Hezekiah and the, and the envoys, did you notice God does not come up once? I mean, what, what an opportunity missed. I mean, absolutely incredible. He doesn't mention God at all. And all he does is point to himself and say, look how great I am. In other words, you Babylonians would benefit from having a friend like me. Just look at all the wealth and military power I have. Now remember, that's why God's blowing up the earth in all the previous chapters. 
right? Failure to trust in God and pointing to self. Remember Sennacherib? I mean, that was his whole gig. I'm so powerful, I am God myself. Doesn't work. Verse 5. Let's, let, let's be clear. What Hezekiah did was a sin. And now Isaiah speaks for God and pronounces God's judgment. And that judgment is all that Hezekiah so proudly showed the Babylonians will someday be theirs. You showed it to them. They're going to come take it off you one of these days. And worse yet, not only your wealth and your military, but your offspring as well. Your descendants will be taken away as slaves. So what God is saying is, Hezekiah, you are so proud of all your stuff. Again, whether you're God's people, whether you're some pagan country, it doesn't matter. The, the justice is the same. So you see, the result is the exact same. Isn't that what God said to all these other nations? You put your trust in your military, and your agriculture, and your wealth, whatever else it is, I will remove it all from you. The same thing happens to Hezekiah, because he's acting exactly like the pagan nations. We've seen it dozens of times. If you put your trust in anything else, and all these things, they will be taken away from you. And then in verse 8. Just to show you how delusional Hezekiah is. Look at how Hezekiah responds. He says, this is a good word. I'm going to lose everything and my, my, my grandchildren are going to be taken away into slavery. This, this is good. He still thinks that God is going to protect him. He thinks that and Isaiah is talking about somebody else. <laughs> he doesn't think this is going to happen to him. So, God promised him more years. He gets more years. Hezekiah's mind, why would God do anything terrible to me? I'm Teflon. Now, through all this, the important lesson for us is that trust in God is not meant to be a once-and-done proposition. It's daily. Hezekiah had a couple good days there, a couple good prayers, <laughs> but it was short-lived. Hezekiah needed to, you and I always need to, trust in God every day in all of our ways. And then we are blessed. But we don't just pick a day to trust in God and expect God to jump through a hoop and do what we want. We're to humble ourselves and do His will, not ours. I don't know about you, but I'm glad to leave chapter 39. I've just... Dumb. Holy cow. What other thoughts, questions do you have in chapter 39? It almost seemed like he was saying, well, thank goodness this is not going to happen to me. Yeah, that's... that's that, again, how delusional he is. Yeah. I mean, he, he, he thinks that, you know, since God blessed me, healed me, I got nothing to worry about. I'm his favorite person and I do anything I want. He doesn't seem too concerned about descendants. No, yeah. How, how frightening is that? I mean, again, it's it's so me oriented. Doesn't care about anybody else but himself. I mean, but talk about a light switch. I mean, how just days before, you know, having these great prayers, 
And now, whoop, go in the exact opposite direction. Just all of a sudden, so full of himself, it's not even funny. So the end result is he did become just like his father. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It'd been a whole lot better if, if he would have died at thirty nine and because at that point the last thing he did was a really good prayer. Yeah. That's a good way to go out. <laughs> you know, I mean the, the the end is the most important part of life. So you gotta gotta finish good. That's why you know Paul always you know d d describes the, the runner in a race. And you don't get you don't get the prize unless you cross the finish line. You have to finish first. You can finish last. <laughs> you just have to finish, get past the finish line. That's all there is to it. So that's a really good model for each and every one of us. Anything else in 39? Let's try 40. 40 begins a section that assumes the Israelites are captive in Babylon. So this Hezekiah thing, this was way before. Now all of a sudden we're going to shift gears and move like 100 years in the future. So now, for the next couple chapters, God's people are captive in Babylon. And we see throughout all the historical books of the Bible, God's people are just stunned. And they, they're always asking questions. Uh, famous questions like how, how, how can we worship God in a foreign land? Right? We don't have the temple anymore. They associated the temple with God. If we don't have the temple, we can't worship God. Uh, so they feel abandoned by God. God is not here in Babylon. He's still back in Israel. Um, yeah, they, they never made the connection. So they're always asking questions, just you know, lamenting, just sad, just can't understand what's going on. And so they're constantly asking questions. So this is God now. Now this is a prophecy of way in the future. This is still in the present, but God is saying these are the questions that are going to be asked. So for the next couple chapters, there's going to be dozens of questions that God is going to answer in anticipation of when it actually does happen. Of course, the major question is, how could the God of Babylon defeat the one true God? That's the $64,000 question. That, yeah, they just couldn't wrap their minds around. I mean, God, we're your people. You should have protected us. And God said, well, I would if you did this. <laughs> right? But since you didn't, then this is what's going to happen. So for the next 15 chapters, God is going to supply answers to all these what-if questions and why questions. How did this happen? Questions. So this chapter begins with God stating that he will, in fact, deliver his people. So it starts in the end. Starts on a note of hope. Before I tell you all the nonsense, <laughs> again, chapter after chapter after chapter of just you know, pain, death, and destruction. But yeah, I'm going to tell you the good news up front. I will, in fact, deliver my people. So in this chapter, the, the first half of the chapter is, is God stating that he will deliver the people. The second half of chapter 40 then says how he's going to do it. So that's pretty good. So we start on a real note of hope. 
Now, the main theme of the whole Babylonian captivity is to demonstrate God's grace. That's why he's doing it. To show that you people absolutely do not deserve this. <laughs> You've done nothing to earn this. And yet I will, I will give my love to you. That's a lot like the precise moment Jesus died on the cross. I mean, historically, you look at it. I mean, the Jews had never been further away from God. Um, just the world is a mess. It was just, just awful. Of all times to pick <laughs> that were you know, hopeless from a human standpoint, that's when, when Jesus dies for our sins. But God knows. It's only in those, those times of desperation and hopelessness that that grace is actually understood and appreciated. And that's what he does here. That after a point that they, they think that they... This is generations now of no God, no God, no God. And then God appears with great grace and welcomes them back into Israel. So the, the point is the Jews do nothing to warrant God's grace. If they had, it wouldn't be grace. <laughs> right? So that's why God then at that point offers them grace and restores them. And really and truly, I mean, if you want to look at this historically, the generation coming back into Israel seemed to me the most faithful, devoted, and loving disciples of God in all Jewish history. They really appreciated it. And that's the purpose of grace. Something that you know you had no control over whatsoever. Just God pouring out his, his goodness. And the people really, really responded to that. But that's the end of the story. Now, verse 2, you know, more good news. This time in Babylon has paid the price for their sin. At the end of verse 2, Israel has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. That's the biblical way of saying the, the debt is paid in full. The, the, what was necessary as a recompense for the sin, we, we're going to clear, clear your account. You're, you're back to zero. Um, so that's, that's good news. Now look, look at verse 3. Does that sound familiar? Who, who in the New Testament said that? John the Baptist. Voice crying in the wilderness. Yeah. Crazy John. Eating bugs and wearing terrible clothing. No fashion sense at all. So again, you know, that's that's the the, the herald share. That's the yeah, you know, just the, the great proclamation. Um, you know, news that they needed to hear. There's a voice crying in the wilderness. And God's going to take care of everything. Look at verse 5. I mean, we've seen this so many times. The purpose of what God is doing at the time seems terrible. But what God is trying to accomplish is to get people to see it clearly. To see who God is clearly. To see His grace clearly. So he goes to extreme measures to make the contrast between, you know, 
the goodness of God and the evil around so abundantly clear that you can't possibly miss it. And you would have to admit this Babylonian captivity was a pretty desperate time. Look at verse 9. This is what Hezekiah should, should have done rather than brag about all the stuff he has. Tell others, quote, here is your God. Remember, that's what happened to Paul in uh, Athens. They, they, they had that statue of the unknown God. Paul says, oh, I can piggyback on that. <laughs> says, I know who that is. <laughs> His name's Jesus. <laughs> right? Oh, and I forget how many, how many people believed that day. Whole boatload of them. I mean, it was awesome. Right? Here's your God. But again, you've got to, got to keep in mind now, these, you know, these idol-worshipping pagan nations, you know, have wood and stone and all these goofball things. And we're going to be getting into that here shortly, just how ridiculous that is. But this is God. Verse 10. More good news. God rewards the faithful. I, I believe the most important word in this verse, and perhaps the whole chapter, is the word comes. The sovereign Lord comes with power. Now again, you know, hearkening back to grace, grace would not be God standing over here and waiting for us to get it and come to Him. See, that's the nature of God. God comes to us. Again, the father and the prodigal son doesn't sit on the porch. He takes off and runs to the hillside where his son is coming back. He doesn't wait for him to arrive. doesn't wait for his son to give him a speech, to apologize, to ask for forgiveness or anything. He just runs to meet his son. God comes to us with the power. Now this is way different than these pagan gods, these idols. Because their, their gods you know, were you know, static and disinterested. They really didn't inter interrelate with humans much. And here we have a great promise that God is coming. Uh, you're going to see repeatedly, you know, God does not abandon us. We abandon Him, but He doesn't abandon us. Now we've already seen a few times the need for God's people to wait. And here we have it again. So it's not just wait and count the days but waiting in hopeful expectation that indeed God is true to His Word and God will come to our rescue. So kind of like you know, the Father sitting on, on the porch just looking off in the distance. That's I'm, It's coming from that way. I'm going to keep just sitting and waiting and watching. I'm not going to get ahead of God, but I'm going to be ready to respond whenever God is, is ready to initiate His will. So don't get ahead of God and try to fix your own problems by yourself. Instead, we trust in Him today, and we're going to renew that trust in Him again tomorrow. And we'll go at God's pace, not expect God to try and keep up with us. Now there in verse 10, it, it says that God comes with a powerful arm. What, what do you think God's going to do with this powerful arm? I, I, I think of it two, two different ways. One positive and one negative. I'll give you a clue. What's God going to do with this arm? I think one positive could be liberating as far as the talking about being into another country. There's power kind of setting setting people free again down the road. Okay. You know, kind of the positive attitude. Negative attitude could be 
kind of a vengeance is my deal. Right, just gonna stomp out my, <laughs> my head. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So a yeah a wiping out of the enemy, um, but a that same arm then can be used to to gather the faithful, right? The you know the protective arm. Don't don't we do that with our kids? When 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 danger approaches, I'm gonna grab them and hold on to them. I mean, it's just, it's instinctual. That's, that's what God does. So, we're going to knock the enemy out of the way, then he's going to grab hold of us, and nothing's going to get you guys. Right? That's, that's the nature of God. And you know, there's images of, of a shepherd here. I mean, isn't that what a shepherd does? That, that protection mode. You know, chasing away the wild animals, you know, gathering the flock together, helping them to find the good food, uh, the water, the, everything they need. It's a powerful arm. But it's not just the negative. It's not just for destroying an enemy. A powerful arm also to embrace us and to remind us that nothing is going to, going to get to us. So look at verse 12. The first 11 verses, we see that God will protect his people. And yet a question still lingers. If God is capable of doing it, why did he not do it for Israel to protect them from the Babylonians? That's the part of keep you up nights. God capable of doing it, but choosing not to do it until a later date. Verses 12 to 26 answers that question. Comes at it from a bunch of different angles. But the bottom line is that God allowed the Babylonians to exile the Israelites to achieve a higher and longer lasting goal. And that is to bring the people back to God so that they will trust in Him alone. That's the ultimate. So compound that question now with a, with, with a sense of, of doubt with the fact that you've... In this system, the once you're taken away as captive, it's never been recorded in history where the empire let you go back home again. See, God's saying, I'm going to bring you back home. That never happens. Who does that? Why'd you go to all the trouble of you know, you know, capturing me, take, take me to your, to your nation, and then after time, letting me go? I mean, look what happened to... The, the Israelites in Egypt. Welcome everybody in. Then we'll make you slaves. That's what happens. <laughs> right? We're not letting you go. Remember how hard it was for them to get away from Pharaoh? Now, who's going to build our bricks? <laughs> right? So, even after he lets them go, 15 minutes later, changes his mind. Go after him, bring him back. we got all these bricks to build. So, that's what happens. So God could have done it and didn't. And now, I just how is this going to happen? How, how can God, if, if God allowed this, this empire to defeat us, how can God be strong enough to, to bring us back? It just didn't make any sense to them. And it took them generations before they could actually realize it. They just couldn't believe in these promises of God. 
So what all these verses reveal is further confirmation of the previous few verses. There should be no question that God can accomplish all that he promises. Because, as we've seen before, this war is not between the Babylonian God and the one true God. Because the Babylonian God is not real. You need two things that are real to have (laughs) have anything. So, it would be like, I pretend that there's some terrible monster here in front of me. Oh, I'm going to fight this monster. You're all looking at me like I'm nuts, right? Because I am. It's just ridiculous. It's not real. So that's how, how ridiculous this whole situation is. But again, God's people just don't get it. So over the next few verses, the, the story unfolds even more. And we begin with God reminding us that he alone is the creator. And then we realize that God is the ruler of all nations and kings. And we see that throughout scripture. So there's nobody in power that God has not placed there. That's good and bad and different, but there's always the purpose for that, right? He's using the Babylonians here to make his point. So God can use anything to achieve his, his will over the course of time. God is the creator. God is in control of everything and everyone. And then there's the clear statement that God is the only God, and therefore you can't compare him to anything. Which results then in the ridiculousness of trying to compare the incomparable God to a stone or wood statue. That's how ridiculous this is. And that's the point God is making throughout this chapter. So we're not only told who God is, but we're also asked the question that will bring us to that conclusion that God is the only true God. I mean, if you look, look, look at verses 12 to 14. There's a series of questions there. Basically asking, can humans do any of these things? Go ahead, pick any human. Greatest human ever. Could that human do these things? Nope. Only God can. So I I called Bowman Bus, and I, I wanted to have a bus pull, pull, pulled up front here today. Because what I, what I wanted to do was get us all on the bus, and... It's going to be a little little drive, but we're going to we're going to go to a, a substantial mountain nearby, and I would like us to circle that mountain and get our hands underneath it and pick that mountain up, and then bring a scale that can handle the weight of the mountain and you know figure out how much that mountain weighs. Bowman talked me out of it. Now I, I really wanted to do that just to just just to see if we could pull it off because maybe. Maybe we could, we could be strong enough to do that. That's how silly all of this is. Can you guys do that? No, but God can. He knows all of that. Remember, he knows how many hairs are on your head. We don't even know that. We can't pick a mountain up and weigh it. Only God can. Verses 15 to 17. Nations think they're so great, but compared to God, they are nothing. Look at the quote. Nations are like a drop in a bucket. (laughs) That's putting it mildly. So basically, verse 16, there's nothing we can do. There's no sacrifice so great that we can sway God's will to ours. 
So the purpose of prayer and the purpose of being righteous or good is not to make God do what we want. It doesn't work that way. We can't move God. I like verses 18 to 20. This would be a great sermon title. Idols are just stupid. <laughs> because they are. And, and, and the question God, God is posing here is, how can an object made by humans be the creator of humans? I mean, follow that logic. But that's what these people believed. We will create something and call that our creator. What? Talk about chicken and an egg. Right? Just, it's absurd. It's ridiculous. So after repeatedly demonstrating that God is the one true God, look at verse 27. Now we have addressed the plight of those in exile. Knowing God's greatness and that he comes to us, why do you complain and think that God is not with you? See, as, as, they're, as they're in Babylon, that's all they did. They just whined and complained, and oh, woe is me, God is not here. Oh, what do we do? Yeah, you know, it's just unbelievable. Talk about Eeyore. But if you know the greatness of God, why would you think that God does not see your plight? Now, there's a good faith question for us. Yeah, you know, when we get in difficult times, you know, why, why would we think that God does not see and God will not come to us? God will not respond to the needs of the faithful. Verse 28. Rhetorical questions. Do you not know? Have you not heard? God's getting a little sarcastic here. Like, come on. <laughs> it's like, geez, what do I have to do with you people? So by the time you get to verse 31, even though all humans become weak, look at a quote. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. This is another great promise of God to the faithful. So the end of the chapter actually poses another rhetorical question. Basically asking us, would you like to soar like an eagle? Would you like to run? Or are you more comfortable walking? <laughs> I mean, you have those options. If you pick. But the realization is only our trust in God will give us the strength to soar, run, or walk. In other words, to get from point A to point B. Only our trust in God will do that for us. And there goes chapter 40. Any other intelligent thoughts on chapter 40? Any silly thoughts on chapter 40? <laughs> Anybody want to say, I like idols? <laughs> well, let's delve a little bit into 41. We've got a couple minutes yet. Did, did you notice that the references throughout the chapter to islands? It's just kind of a weird deal. What, what are they talking about there? God, God is calling each nation an island, designating that yeah, they, their nations are independent, right? So they're like an island. 
So you all want to be separate from everybody else, isolationist and all that. You know, you just, you know, that's what a nation wants to do. You know, we don't want to deal with others. We just want to be ourselves. So fine, I'll call you an island. You'll be out there all by yourself. All these islands. So here in the first verse, we, we have God issuing two commands that seem to be contradictory. In, in just in one verse, He starts by saying, "Be silent." Then halfway through, through the verse, he says, okay, now answer the question. <laughs> what? So we need to take, take a look at that. Let's, let's take them in order. Why would God tell persons to be silent? To hear. All right. So you can hear what he has to say. Do you ever have trouble understanding somebody while you're talking to? Right? So in other words, what God has to say is, is critically, critically important. This is, as Dr. Phil says, don't miss a good opportunity to shut up. <laughs> right? You'll learn a lot more that way, especially when the word is from God. So there are times to be quiet, to be still. Don't say that. Be still and know that I am God. Right? So there's, the, the, there's some wisdom in that. Now, I, I, in, in another sense... Now, after all this that has happened, you have to put, put it in context. I, I think it's also possible God's telling them to be quiet because there's nothing they can say. I mean, anything you say is just going to be like Hezekiah. You're just going to shoot yourself in the foot, right? <laughs> just stop talking. You know, don't, don't make it any worse for yourself. You need to be wise enough to, to just, just be, be silent. But then, almost immediately, God says, let them come forward and speak. Now, be silent. Let them come forward and speak. There's something in between those two that I think worthy for us to look at. Why does God now invite them to speak? They've been renewed. So how do we become renewed? By our own strength? By our own wisdom? our own military, by our own wealth. Give a bunch of no-nos, right? I like, I like Paul how he says, be renewed by the transforming of your mind. There it is. Yeah. Change the way you think, which means I will no longer be proud of my own accomplishments. I will trust in the Lord. I will change what goes on up here. So the renewing, new means new, right? <laughs> so we're completely new. So that middle line is really, really important. In other words, don't talk until you have been renewed. And then please, by all means, come forward and speak. you got to love that. That really neat image. They've renewed their strength in God. So we're, you know, words like repent, submit, humble, you know, those kind of things come to mind. That's, that's the renewing part. I, I, I've got to do it differently. I, I can no longer trust in myself or in anything else or these stupid idols. I need to simply trust in God. So, verse 1 of Priest Brian. That's, <laughs> that's a, good, a good verse here. I like that one a lot. So we, we've seen over the last few chapters, you know, the, all these questions that are posed. And God is offering the answers. So here in verses 2 through 4... We have even more questions. But these questions are from God. And essentially, God is asking, are any of you capable of doing these things? 
We saw evidence of that in the last chapter, right? You guys think you're all that? Can you do that? Right? Remember, pick up a mountain? Can't do that. So God's being real facetious here. The answer is no. But in verse 4, the last question is asked. Who has done this? All these things I've just asked you, well, if you haven't done it, who did? And God even answers his own question at that point. Since apparently we're not smart to figure it out. Or they weren't smart to figure it out. I, the Lord, with the first of them and with the last, I am he. I am he sounds a lot like Moses in the burning bush, doesn't it? Who? What name should I tell him? Yeah. Just big I am. Yep. So God asked twice who who called the quote one from the east. Do you see that? So get your geography now. Israel. Oh, here's Babylon. Let me see. Yeah, to the east. <laughs> right? So pointing to Babylon twice now, the reference is to what we will eventually historically understand is King Cyrus. Is the one who finally now God breaks through to King Cyrus, and he's the one who says, okay, we need to get God's people back home again. And he not only allows them, he, he ushers them in. He, he welcomes them in to, you know, to, come, to come, come back home again. Verse 8. God reminds his people what he has done for them, and more importantly, reminds them that they are, quote, my servant, and that God has chosen them. The servant does what the master tells them to do, right? So finally, now they are in in that position. And again, as 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 they come come back home many years later, they are ready to serve. They can't do enough for God. It's just awesome. But there's a good place to stop. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.